lot of times those who take their lives, they aren't in their right mind. And they are thinking I'm a burden, no, nobody cares, I don't matter. You absolutely matter. The impact that you have is so big. And if you are struggling, talk about it. Find someone, there, there are people that care. And I don't think for a minute that people that, that say that, oh, I'm thinking about suicide, that, that they're just calling wolf. They, they need help mm. and they need to find a reason going. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. After working in the corporate world for 25 years, my guest today left to run her father's trucking company when he passed away unexpectedly from suicide after struggling with mental illness for most of his life. Her business experience allowed her to streamline the company in nine months, and later she was working only one hour a week. Realizing that there were many entrepreneurs who could benefit from her experience, she started her own consulting business. Her 19-year-old son's suicide in March of 2019 reinforced what she'd been hearing from many of her high-achieving clients. They felt unworthy and incapable of reaching their goals. Lark went from coaching on the externals to focusing on why each person matters. I'm pleased to present Lark Galley. Lark, are you ready to share your story of hope? I am ready, yes. (laughs) So the cool thing about Lark is I I was able to have her on the show back in 2019, just a few months after her son uh, died by suicide. And and we had a very raw, open conversation then. And this is kind of a follow-up to that because we see a lot of people who are struggling right now with the change that COVID-19 has brought about. And Lark has also just finished writing her book learning to breathe again, um, choosing to heal after losing a loved one with suicide. And I just finished reading it yesterday. Highly, highly recommend it. So we're going to talk a little bit about the process that she went through writing that book. But first of all, Lark, why don't you give us an update? How are you doing after, you know, here we are a little bit, probably at least a year and a half later. How are you doing with all of this? So there's ups and downs, right? There's, there's good <laughs> days and there's bad days. And I have just learned to allow myself to show up however I need to show up that day. And um, there have been times when I've, I've done some, some speaking and I'm you know, really strong and I show up and I no, no crying, you know. And there are other times I show up and I wasn't expecting it and I just start to cry. And, and I have learned that whoever shows up that day, it's okay. And mm. it's a grieving process. And that's something that I've, I've had to learn. I I look back, you know, it's almost two years since my son died. And I look back to when we had our last conversation, you know, when we did the last interview and I think, wow, I have learned so much since then. I thought I knew a lot then, but now I'm like, oh, I went through a lot and I had to allow a lot and um, just be able to process things. And I know that in the coming years, I will learn even more. Mm, Wow. And 
thank you for being on the show today again and, and sharing with us some of these tips that you've learned. One of the things we were talking about before we actually started recording the show was the impact that COVID-19 has had on the emotional well-being of both parents and children. And what do you think has changed? Well, I look back in 2019 when my son died and my husband and I pulled back from a lot of social events. We just did not have the emotional capacity to go out. We, we could no longer find joy in what we perceived as the trivial, right? You mm. hear that a lot about people who, who lose a loved one and they, they just, they lose um, kind of the desire to do a lot of things. And it, it had to do with a shifting in our priorities. And I think that what we experienced in 2019 with that uncertainty and our foundation sort of being pulled out from underneath us and how we thought the world was going to be, the world went through that in 2020. So we sort of already had our massive shift life changes, you know, life is never going to be the same. And so I can um, sympathize with so much of what has been going on this last year where people have had to prioritize their values, what is the most important thing? And suddenly, you know, what we thought of being the top executive or traveling all over the world or doing all of these goals that we might've had, suddenly things got stripped away and what was most important became very evident very quickly. Mm. What do you think the most important things are, were for you and that people are realizing need to become the most important things for them to keep um, emotions and everything else more stable? Because I know that, I, as I told you, I have days where I feel more anxious and I have to kind of do a mental checklist of, have I been doing my self-care as I should? Do I have boundaries set up like I should? What, what have you seen? Well, let's take it back two years ago. This was a couple months before my son's death. Um, my main goals, you know, that year were um, I, I was going to expand my consulting business. I was working um, just to, to grow that, to grow um, the number of people that I was working with. I also have the trucking company from my father. I wanted to expand that. I have always been a goal-driven person, like crazy goals. And uh, I wanted to do a lot of things. My husband and I had several international trips planned and we, we were going to do all of these exciting things. And when my son died, unexpected from suicide, we just stepped back and suddenly all of those things that I thought were so important, all of these business goals, career goals that I had, they didn't mean anything to me. Mm. And my husband uh, was almost 35 years in the military at that time. That was his part-time job, but he would, he had some big responsibilities there as well as his own um, engineering business that, that he's a partner in. And, and he too just suddenly lost this desire to keep pushing and, you know, go to the next level. And um, he retired later that year, that same year that my son died from the military. He just, he, just did not have that drive anymore. And, and I saw my daughter, both my daughters, you know, struggle and, and try to find their footing, what mm. was important to them. And I thought it was interesting um, 
teaching my, my, my older daughter in her corporate job. And I thought about, you know, managers who may be going through this and seeing their employees struggling. Maybe they're, they're having, uh, they're going through a divorce or their, their child has a terminal illness or there's been a death in the family. How do you motivate these people? Because suddenly, you know, that carrot, oh, you're going to get a higher position. You're going to get more money. You're going to do this or that. That carrot just doesn't matter anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to look at how we interact with other people and, and say, what, what motivates them? Because suddenly what was motivational was having an impact in the world. That, that was my motivation. Mm-hmm. is being able to help influence other people so that they would make different choices so that their families did not have to go through what our family went through. Mm. Yeah. So your, your, your motivation changed from all those business goals to being more of a let's help each other out, which actually the timing on that probably couldn't have been better. People have needed so much help this last year. So what have you seen people's priorities shifting towards this last year? I think just like with us in our family, we realized that family and what happened in your home was suddenly more important than, hey, I'm going to go out and achieve this big goal at work. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the the thought that um, someone in your family could become sick and die or that you might be separated, you know, if, if you have certain family members that you can no longer see or visit or, or hug, that could have been devastating for us. You know, fortunately we were kind of all together. So, you know, this last year we didn't really have a lot of separation from the immediate family, but for those family members who maybe had parents who they couldn't see, that was hard, right? That, that physical, which I think a lot of the, the measures that were taken for a quarantine exacerbated a lot of the the things that happened with the mental health and um, contributed to people feeling more isolated and not getting that physical touch and and interaction with people. I think that, you know, um, Zoom has been very helpful because let's say that you and I can't touch, but at least we can see each other's faces. Yeah. we We can interact that way. And that's not ideal. Ideal would to meet it be meet, to meet in person, but if that's not possible, at least we're having some human interaction, which which is what is so needed to ensure our mental health. Yeah, no, it's right. I I noticed most of my family lives out of state, and so we actually set up a family Zoom call that happens every other Sunday, and that that has been really fun, and, and especially for my parents who are in their 70s, it's been nice for them to interact with family members at least twice a month. You know, we make phone calls other times, which has worked, but these Zoom calls where we can see each other's faces and the grandkids can jump on and say, hey, I love you, Grandma, <laughs> you know, Grandpa, it's good to see you, you know, just cute little things like that mean the world to people who are just completely isolated. Yes. And I think I've seen more of that. You know, I've heard of more families doing um, regular Zoom meetings, you know, and it's brought more connectivity to extended families. And I think that's been beautiful because we've had to realign our priorities and we can't go out and do a lot of the external things we used to do. 
So now let's really look at what is the most important thing. And you mentioned, you know, your own mental health, and that is crucial because if if you as a person are not in a good place, you can't help other people. And I think of, of my son, and now I'm hearing so many stories um, from a lot from his friends and from other people. I just dropped off a few copies of my book to his former high school. And I had some of his friends uh, talk to me about the things that he, he had done. And one friend said, I remember Valentine's Day when he went to the grocery store, not once, but twice and bought out all the roses at two different grocery stores. And he gave every girl in that high school a flower because he didn't want anyone to be left out. And I thought, I didn't even know that story. And, and so it's an example of him trying to help other people when in fact he was empty himself. And unfortunately, we as his parents did not know how he was struggling. So it's so important that, that you feel that you're capable to help others. Hmm. What are some of the things that you have perhaps had to incorporate into your life since your son's suicide that have helped you maintain your self-care and your own mental health since then? I think sleep is really important. Um, I remember as a young mom, young kids, I mean, I was in a corporate executive role. I think I averaged maybe five and a half hours of sleep a night. That was the average. Mm. And I look back on that and I think, I thought that, oh yeah, I got this. And I look back and I was like, I don't know who I was fooling because I was just on the edge, you know, all the time. And I, I realized that um, sacrificing that sleep and taking care of myself was probably not the most ideal thing. And, and in our world, we give the world, oh, busy. I'm so busy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't like that word. I, I'm always engaged in something. I always have things that I want to do and to take care of. But if someone stops by the house and they want to talk to me for a minute, or uh, I want to make a phone call, or I want to write a letter or a text or whatever, I have learned that, that slowing down and having those personal connections, that is more than a busy, busy, you know, task-oriented life. Because relationships are the spice that gives flavor to our life. And I was very task-oriented. I'm task-oriented still, but I was 99 tasks and 1% (laughs) relationship, you know? Uh And now I try to at least be 50-50, which for me is huge. Yeah. Those are some really good points. The sleep and the making room for those relationships. I think you're absolutely spot on there. I know that's something, and I think we've all noticed the lack of that. Um, We had a Zoom party for a friend for her birthday a couple of weeks ago, and it was so fun to just see and interact with a couple of my friends, even on Zoom again. You know, we played like a little Zoom game after, but we first shared what we've all been going through. And we need to schedule things like that more often because I think that's what's lacking. That's what's been the hardest in, in this COVID world of quarantine that we've been dealing with. As you know, when I lost my son over that time period, I realized how important relationships were. And I think now people are starting to realize that as well is that um, in my very task centered world, 
I did not realize or appreciate how much I needed other people and how integral they were to my mental wellness, to, to my enjoyment of life. And I've had to shift that and, and say, okay, now I'm actively carving out time to be with these people that I care about and want to nurture these relationships. Because like I mentioned, you know, everybody feels like this need, this busy, we get all these externals put on us of expectations. And we need to step back and say, in the long run, does this really matter? Mm. That is a really good question to ask yourself. And I and I found myself that sometimes I need to ask that. It's that kind of long view perspective on life and the things that we're working towards, you know? <laughs> I liken it to, you know, we talk about how grandparents are so patient with the, the grandkids and they're, they're, they've changed. Um, they can do that because they have a different perspective. And I wish that parents could learn that perspective as parents versus as grandparents. But a lot of times, you know, parents are so caught up in they're they're trying to earn a living so that they can keep a roof over the family's head and, and food on the table and the next, next, next. And if we can just step back and look at our children, um, not as little robots, but as humans who are struggling and who are looking to us for stability, emotional stability. Because right now, for these young people, it is a difficult time. And young adults, especially, suddenly, you know, their plans, think about your life. I'm sure you Mm -hmm. had plans, right? My life was down to a nub. I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And suddenly, you know, that's changed. They don't know. What is my graduation going to look like? Um, am I going to be able to have a job? Am I going to get a job? How, how is this career going to work? Can I pay uh, my school loan off? Can I afford to live, you know, in an apartment? How am I going to pay for these things? And all of these pressures and uncertainties, that, that's kind of been a big um, group, that young adult group has, has struggled, as well as your, your teenagers. They've also struggled quite a bit with this. And we as parents, you know, we need to kind of bridge that gap and check on their mental wellness. Um, I know that for me, my son, difficult child for me. And I look back on how I would kind of think about him and say, okay, when he finally graduates from college, when he moves out of the house and becomes a parent and he understands, you know, how, how I tried to love and parent him, then we can have a better relationship. Mm. Rather than going back to when he was, five and six (laughs) and those struggles started rather than trying to find some way to bridge the gap and form connections and spend more time with him and his interests versus, okay, we'll do it later. We'll do it later. Or, or spending, you know, 10 minutes on something that maybe I could have spent 30 minutes on. That's where I should have tried to foster those relationships at the younger age, instead of thinking, I'll do it later because Mm. there might not be a later. Wow. I loved what you, I'm just going to pull out one of the things you said is, is fostering those relationships in things that they are interested in. And, and that is tricky to do because sometimes you're so not interested in what they're interested in. And yet 
that is where you're going to connect with them the best. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so if you're not sure what those are, just ask your kid, say, what are, what are some of the things you enjoy? And can, can we find something and go do it together? Mm -hmm. Um, and in this COVID world, can we find something, you know, maybe even do it in doing it at home or a modified version of something? I know I asked, uh, I have a son who's graduating from high school this year and, I asked him, what are some of the things you enjoy? And of course, he, it's video games, but I said outside of video games. And he mentioned that he really loves hiking and photography. And so that's something that, you know, we try to nurture um, in him and spend time out in nature and going to state and national parks. And that's often where our vacations end up being because it's something we all enjoy, thank goodness, in our yeah. family. It's something you can do right now. Yes, right? <laughs> I know. It is something we can do right now. <laughs> and it's one of the few things we can do right now. Go out and be outside and enjoy that. Which, which is really important. I think for me, I've realized uh, nature has always been important. But for me, the grounding and just the peace that I feel in nature, um, I've had to be really conscientious of that with, with the whole quarantine and, and just the changes in lifestyle. There are some days that the only time I go outside is to get the mail. And so <laughs> that's really sad, right? And so I've had to consciously say, let, let me get out a little more. Let me go interact or let me just get the sunshine on my face for 10 minutes. Mm. That's important too. So these little things that might bring you joy and just help you to get grounded and, and back to what is most important. It's important that we take the time for those. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you know one of the things I actually started um, just this last month was um, I, I, I've always had a little bit of a green thumb and with it being ice cold outside, I, I started a little indoor garden and I planted a couple little seeds and I have just had so much fun. Every morning I go down and I water the seeds and I see how much more they've grown and it brings me joy. You were talking, you know, and so yes. I've had to transfer one of these skills that I usually just use in the spring and summer into my home because I need some sort of hobby that I can do here in my house. And so, yes, I did buy several pots at the dollar store and some seeds. And, and so I'm growing stuff in my house, which I've done on occasion, but now I think I'm doing it more for me as a hobby, because I need that for my self-care. And that's beautiful <laughs> that you discovered that. That is, that is very beautiful. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, I'm going to have Lark tell us a little bit about the writing process and what she learned about her experience through writing about it. Also, I'll have her tell us a little bit about what she shares with people who are struggling with suicidal ideations and the resources available to them and those who love them to help them in that process. Hi, this is Tamara K. Anderson, and I want to share something special with you. When our son Nathan was diagnosed with autism, I felt like the life we had expected for him was ripped away and with it, my own heart shattered as well. It's very common for families to feel anger, pain, confusion, and anxiety when a child is diagnosed. This is where my book, Normal For Me, comes into play. It shares my story of learning to replace my pain with acceptance, peace, joy, and hope. Normal For Me has helped change many lives and I'd like to give this book to as many families as possible. We've put together something I think is really special. 
my friends and listeners can order copies of my book at a significantly discounted price, and we will send them to families who have just had a child diagnosed with autism or another special needs diagnosis. We will put your name inside the cover so they will know someone out there loves them and wants to help. I will also sign each copy. You can order as little as one or as many as hundreds to be shared with others. So go to my website, TamaraKAnderson.com and visit the store section for more information and to place your order. You can bless the lives of many families by sending them hope, love, and peace. Check it out today at TamaraKAnderson.com and help me spread hope to the world. And we're back. I've been talking to Lark Galley about her experience and the things she's learned since the suicide of her father and son. Now, I was going to ask you a little bit about the process of writing your book and what that process, what you learned through that process. Because often people, when they have to write things down, they they learn they put puzzle pieces together that perhaps they hadn't realized about their life before. So tell me how this writing process was therapeutic for you, because writing is something we all can do, right? Yes, exactly. Whether you're planning to publish that as a book or not, I think writing helps you uh, get clear. And also it brings out maybe thoughts and ideas that, that, we're in your subconscious that you didn't even realize, oh, I was thinking that, or, oh, that, that happened. I didn't realize that. Um, So my idea of writing a book was that you spend two weeks (laughs) writing all down and you're done, right? Because uh, forget about the interruptions that come from day-to-day life or, or just things that have to happen, all of that. That was so unrealistic, but (laughs) I'm a task-oriented person and why can't I do it? So it was interesting. I started writing and, and all of these life interruptions happened um, back in uh, 2019 in the summertime. And, and then, so I would write slowly. And what also happened was that uh, a lot of emotions came up. So I would write for a couple of weeks and then it was so much emotion that I had to put it to the side and I wouldn't come back to it for another month or two. And it, it was hard to like almost force myself to write these stories because I had to go back and revisit the day my son died, his yeah. funeral, going to the funeral home and picking out a casket. Um, the day my husband and I had a very candid conversation about, are we going to make it as a couple? Mm-hmm. You know, because 30% of, of, Couples who experience a loss of a child, they end up in a divorce. And I would say that's because, you know, marriage is already hard. And then to lose a child, it it just brings out all of the things, all the problems you were having before, (laughs) it just magnifies it, right? Mm. And so we had to like look really deeply and see we needed each other on a level that that no one else could understand. And so Mm -hmm. All of these emotions, I had to relive all of that. Uh, that was hard. And, and so the process was a lot longer than I anticipated. Another thing is that my friend who actually initially suggested that I write the book, she knew me from high school. And she said something, uh, so Lark, are you going to include um, about your childhood? And I said, 
why would I include anything about my childhood? That has nothing to do with my son's death. So I thought, right? And she said, it has everything to do with your son's death. She reminded me about coming to my house um, one time when I was in, in um, high school in ninth grade. And she remembers my uh, hoarding food and putting it in my bedroom so that I would have some food for lunch the next day. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is interesting because I don't remember that. Mm. And if you don't remember something, it was just par for the course, right? It was normal. You remember things that, that were not normal, that, that happened outside your normal routine. And I'm like, whoa, okay, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, my father was undiagnosed bipolar until he was in his 50s. And so looking back now, we can see, you know, the roller coaster, um, him changing jobs. I went to a different school every year of my life. That is and, so and crazy. Itself, you know, it was like kind of crazy, but my father made it feel like it was an adventure. So we were having adventures our whole life and just the, the instability that happened in our family and the uncertainty. It wasn't until I finished writing the book that I realized, oh my goodness, because of the instability that I experienced as a child, I implemented a very structured home life. It was almost too structured. And my son, you know, he had his own issues he mm-hmm. was rebelling against that. And he did not understand that, that as someone who experienced this, I'm going to say somewhat trauma, but I didn't realize it was trauma mm-hmm. in, my, in my childhood, that that's how I coped and implementing certain ways that I needed things done. And, and, and that was huge in understanding how I parented. So if we as parents can look back and say, okay, what from my childhood is now affecting me as a parent, and is it good or bad? Can I can I maybe let that go and realize that that you know I don't have to have twenty backup items for everything that I love and use. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, you know. I only have to have one or two backup items. <laughs> I, I, now that we don't have as many kids in the house, I'm going through and using you know all of my surplus stuff, and I'm like, wow, I you know, was an organized hoarder in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So it's interesting that you were able to piece together some of the things from your past and help you, that helped you understand why you were the way you were. Yes. And I think that that is true for any situation in life. Um, If you're struggling, it is good to go back and maybe write a little bit about your childhood, write or type or journal or however you want to do it, because writing about it is very cathartic. It helps you get it out. It helps you process it. I know I went through a similar situation when I wrote my book that, you know, I would write the surface stuff and then my editor would come back and say, I need you to tell me more about this. And I'm like, I don't remember. And then the reason I didn't remember is I had repressed so many of the hard and awful memories. <laughs> I had to go back to my what little journaling I'd done and reread and cry all over again, kind of like you were saying, but it was good for me to piece so many things together and help me understand myself better and help me understand my children better. And so writing in and of itself is a huge, hugely beneficial way to process trauma uh, to process just life events, to 
process COVID-19 and how you're feeling about it. I know that's one of the things I made sure my kids had this last year was a journal so that they could write how they were feeling and thinking. And I'm sure, you know, 20 years from now, they'll look back on that journal and go, oh yeah, I remember the COVID-19 crisis. <laughs> I mean, we think we'll remember these things and we really don't, you know, especially no. the hard stuff, we, we repress it. I was, I've been organizing and going through a lot of my, my cupboards and files, et cetera, this last few months. And I have all of these journals and there is a running theme through these journals. And that is the, the anger I had towards my son and, and just this, this, the relationship and how he wouldn't listen to me and how he always argued with me. And I look back on that and I think, wow, how I wish that that relationship had been different and how I wish that that I could have let go of a lot of that anger that I had during the time when he was alive. And, and maybe that would have helped the relationship. And um, when I was writing the book, I felt him so close to me. I, you know, I know that he wants me to share the story of how he struggled and, um, and how hopefully other people can see that struggle and, and ask for help. Right. Mm. And so when when I finished writing the book and it finally got published at the end of, of 2020, you know, like a lot of things where we finish a big goal, we think, yay, you know, we're done. And, and, and the happier times are ahead. And that's not at all what happened for me. Um, within just a week of, of having it, it launched and published, I went into a, a deep depression. It was like my son died again because suddenly I wasn't wasn't trying to write that story and I didn't feel him as close to me as I had felt all during that writing process. And I was getting these thoughts in my head like, okay, your book is done. If anybody wants to read the story, they can read it. You can be done. You don't have to stay on this planet anymore. You're, you've done your work. Your work is over. And interesting thoughts in my head, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm the one that's going out and telling people that they need to stay on this planet. They're important. They have an important message. And yet those are the thoughts. And um, Richard Paul Evans, who's the one who wrote the forward in my book and, and my mentor in writing this, he and I had lunch just the next day, which was good. It wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily planned that it would be around this thing, but we had it on this, the calendar. So we went to lunch and I told him, you know, well, I was asking, I said, when you finish writing a book, do you like have this huge crash and, and just want to curl up and die? He's like, no, it's, it's the opposite for me normally because my books are, um, are fiction. When the writing process is super hard because I have to come up with all of the storyline and the emotions and all of that. When I'm done, it's like happy days, Woo, mm. you know, big burden mm. relieved. And so it was the opposite of mine because mine was very much a true story and all of these emotions. And I was experiencing the crash afterwards. And he pointed something out that was, that was really critical. And he said, Lark, your mission is not the book. You're not done. It's not just because now, oh, you've written your story. It's, it's all over. This is just the start because you have the opportunity to impact thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives with your message. So you're not done. And that really helped me get a better perspective of, of what I was trying to do and, and continue to go out and help people and explain to them that, that your mission, your purpose for being here is not just one event. 
it's that ongoing and, and being able to share your light and your message with other people, even when you personally struggle. Because that's when I found strength and the opportunity to go forward is in hearing people's stories. And when they thank me for being willing to share how hard it's been for me, because then they, they can speak up and say, it's been hard for me too. Thank mm-hmm. you for helping me see that I can go on. So your message is that imperfect people have a powerful perspective they can share with the world. Yes. And I think that's so important because who is perfect? Who's running no. around imperfect? You know, and I think so for so long we had this, you know, social media image like this facade. Oh, things are perfect. You know, not don't look behind the curtain. And and if we can show up in our vulnerability and in our vulnerability still show up then other people can say, I connect with you. I understand what you're going through because I'm going through a hard time too. And and thank you so much. Mm, I love that. Because so often we feel like our message or what we're going through isn't worth sharing because we don't want people to see the ugly parts. Mm -hmm. Um, When in reality, when we share those ugly parts of our lives, especially on social media, I found that so many people, like I get 10 times more interactions or maybe 20, 100 times more interactions when I share those vulnerable moments. Like I had a really hard day today and my kid threw a tantrum and, you know, um, it's just things like that when we're willing to say, I'm missing my son today, perhaps. I really, for some reason today is really hard. Um, that that people respond. And don't you think that um, part of that is because God intended our lives for, for our lives to interact with each other, that often in our deepest, darkest moments, God sends angels in the forms of friends yes. or family members to buoy us up. Mm-hmm. No, I feel that's so important. And that's why I say more than ever, I finally realize how connected we are as as a human race and how somebody that we don't know can have a big impact on us just by by having a kind word have you ever experienced that when you're you're feeling down and somebody has a kind word for you and you're like oh thank you i do matter yes absolutely Um, some people have commented that my book is very raw and it's very open it is it is not superficial on any level it goes Mm -hmm. deep and I was really open and I found that the more honest and real I could be, the freer I felt, right? Mm. I felt so free in sharing my story. And and if people like, we all have trauma in our lives, something happened. But if we can speak up about that and, and be very open and not try to hide anything, then we're free. We don't have to put up a facade or pretend and the, the more honest we are and open, then the freer we feel. Um, when my father died by suicide seven years ago, I couldn't even talk about it. My friends didn't know that that's how he died. And finally, by, by being willing to talk about my son's suicide and then my father's suicide, I finally could heal from my father's suicide and my, my son's suicide because I was willing to be really honest and confront reality which is not always easy. And, and that's why I tell people, you know, if, if you're hurting 
and you're not healed, it's because you haven't looked at reality. And, and by looking at what is real and being honest and speaking about it, you can heal. Mm. Wow. And that requires a lot of courage, I think. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I'm opening myself up to rejection. That was one of the big things when I first started going out and thinking about, I'm going to talk about uh, suicide prevention, my son's suicide. My thought was, I am going to get a backlash because people are going to look at me and say, you are a terrible mom. Why didn't you see this? Why didn't you know? Why didn't you whatever? And nobody has ever said that to me. Mm. But I was afraid. Mm-hmm. I think the, the adversary does his very best to try to stop us from making the biggest impact. But often making the biggest impact, we have to face our biggest fears. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and And so... So what did you do to be able to have the courage to face those fears and to be raw and vulnerable? What, what, what helped you? I had to look at this from helping people and, and seeing that I was helping them stay on the planet and stay alive versus, oh, my self-image or the reputation that I had or maybe the struggles with, that my son and my father had rather than trying to push those under and hide those. I I had to be willing to say, this is what happened. These are my regrets. This is what I wish I had done differently. Um, Encourage people to look at their relationships differently and and maybe how they can interact. So the, the book is to help parents in their relationships with their children so that they never have to go through what, what my husband and I went through. And also it's to help parents who maybe have or anyone who is grieving and and however that grief shows up, whether it's losing someone to suicide or just a grief from whatever, that there is a way to move through that grief by finding a a bigger purpose. Mm. And my purpose was to help 100,000 people choose to stay on this planet Mm. and, and realize that they were important because if I affect one person that changes the course of their life and they then affect two people, and they affect two people. It's just, it's just going to snowball. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I never understood how connected we were as a human race. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that is that is really really beautiful. Um, let me ask you: there, there are parents and and perhaps teenagers, young adults out there who may be listening to this podcast who are struggling right now with suicidal ideations what core message do you want them to leave this podcast with? First of all, they are not a burden to their family. A lot of times those who take their lives, they aren't in their right mind and they are thinking I'm a burden. Nobody cares. I don't matter. You absolutely matter. And there are so many lives that will be impacted by your choice. If you choose to to end your life early, um, it has impacted our family. Every single one of us have made huge 183 life changes. And it has been difficult and we have all struggled. And one of the other reasons that I realized I couldn't afford to go into a depression like I did when my father died was that I didn't know if my family members were still going to be around, that they were going to make it if I chose to go into a dark depression. 
because they were struggling and it was touch and go for a while with, with each family member as to were we going to make it in the face of this loss that we couldn't reconcile, we didn't understand. And, and so the impact that you have is so big. And if you are struggling, talk about it, find someone. There, there are people that care. And I don't think for a minute that people that, that say that, oh, I'm thinking about suicide, that, that they're just calling wolf. They, they need help. Mm. And they need to find a reason to keep going. Mm. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. What resources would you recommend for, for either caregivers or for people themselves who are struggling with suicide? So on my website, Lark Dean Galley, there's a resource tab because I was so, so much talking about this, you know, mm-hmm. um, suicide prevention. And then people would come to me and say, well, what can I do? And I'm like, oh, what can you do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I have partnered with Dr. Dr. Jenkins. Um, he has some great parenting courses. I love how he teaches that as parents, we need to love our kids no matter what. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a hard thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he offers a... Um, a $1 trial for a week, which is a great deal. It's on that resource tab. People can take advantage of that and just look at all the courses he has um, parenting and also, okay, what if you are suffering with suicide ideation? What if someone you know has, so he has some, some courses on that as well. Um, we did a few interviews on that as you know, what people could do and what to look for. So that's one of the resources. Another resource there is like to, to look at your, your, um, your mental wellness, maybe take a, a little quiz that's on my website to, to gauge that and what are some things you can be doing to improve that. There's the, um, the Utah suicide um, number that's for Utahns. There's also another, um, the NAMI, the National Association for Suicide Prevention. Uh, that number is on there as well so that you can call and get some, some resources there. Awesome. So there. There are a few different ways you can do that, but um, also, I would just, if somebody's hurting, they need help, uh, Google free suicide resources in your state, whatever your state is, and, and see what comes up. Because this, I think states are realizing more and more, this is an epidemic. They're mm-hmm. starting to put more resources to suicide prevention. Because we need to save our people. Mm-hmm. And you're worth saving, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, seriously, uh, people are a resource, right? They're a national resource. And, and if we lose one person, that person's life on average has affected like 115 people. Uh-huh. So if it, if it hurts 115 people to the point that they can't um, be at their full capacity, then that affects other people as well. And it just diminishes our, our nation as a whole. Mm. Mm. Wow, this has been so, so helpful. Let me ask you this. Is there a Bible verse that has become particularly meaningful to you over this past year as you've processed more grief and as you've written your book? I was say as I was thinking about that, I was looking at one in Revelation um, chapter 21, verse four. Um, and it says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow, neither nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. And I, I look back over this almost two years and uh, the pain that our family has gone through. Uh, 
confused. And I just know that at a future time that it will all be whole and we'll be all whole together. And that is the hope, right? That is the hope that we have through Jesus Christ is that death is not the end and that we can be with our family members afterwards. And that all this grief and sorrow will be, as it says in that verse, there shall not be any more pain. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) So there is hope. You will get through it. (laughs) Oh, Lark, this has been so, so wonderful. Are there any last minute thoughts that you'd like to share before we close? Just want to tell people that you matter, that, that the message that you have inside you matters. And it might not feel like that right now. And you might not feel like you have much impact, but I would just say, hang in there, stay in there because at some point someone is going to turn to you. And this person probably is somebody you love quite a bit. And if you can then be there to extend a hand to them and help them through their difficulty, will have changed the world by changing that one person. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, subscribe so you can get your weekly dose of powerful stories of hope. I know there are many of you out there who are going through a hard time, and I hope you found useful things that you can apply to your own life in today's podcast. If you would like to access the show notes of today's show, please visit my website, storiesofhopepodcast.com. There you will find a summary of today's show, the transcript, and one of my favorite takeaways. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this episode with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a quote or a scripture verse that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this podcast. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help you bear the burden. And above all else, remember God loves you.